Well, thank you all for being here tonight, and uh, we come to our last study uh, in the book of Revelation. So if you would, join me in chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 21. And as we did last week, we're going to walk through the text pretty quickly and then uh, answer some final questions about what uh, people commonly ask with respect uh, to the wonderful uh, promise of heaven. When you come to Revelation 22, you come to the last words in the book of Revelation and you come uh, to the last words in the Bible. And, and as we've said previously, it ends the way uh, the Bible should end, with the hope of heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, with a concluding uh, invitation uh, for sinners to come and drink of the living water and to draw near to the tree of life which is the avenue whereby they enter into God's presence forever and ever and ever. Uh, these words end with a note of encouragement. But they also end with a note of warning. And there are two themes that are going to draw together the seven invitations that we're going to look at quickly this evening. One is the reliability and the authenticity of this book of Revelation. And secondly is the imminency of the end. In fact, uh, no less than nine times in these final verses, you'll have an emphasis upon the idea of soon, the idea of nearness, and the idea of coming. So both the reliability of the message and the imminency of the end are emphasized in the seven invitations that are embedded in these final verses. So what kind of invitations do we find in Revelation 22, 6-21? Well, number one, uh, we need to obey the Word of God. Verse 6 and verse 7. And He, now the word He there is a reference back to the angel who speaks in verse 1 of this same chapter. So this angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, that is the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold... I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, we come to the epilogue, and Scott Duvall points out, and I noticed this myself again as I was looking over the verses this afternoon, there's a remarkable number of similarities between the end of the book and the beginning of the book. In other words, if you go back and examine chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, you will find a number of common themes that parallel chapter 22, verse 6 through 21. In fact, Scott Duvall says, quote, important parallels with the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and three central themes that reinforce the overall message of the book are present. Number one, the book is an authentic prophecy from God. Number two, Jesus Christ's return is imminent. And number three, those who obey the prophecy will be Blessed, And so the angel who began to talk to John back in verse 1 tells him these words. What words? The words of the revelation. These words are trustworthy and they are true. In other words, these words are reliable. Uh, these words are dependable. You can trust these words. After all, their source is who? The Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets. In other words, the God who inspired the prophets to write their revelations is the God who has inspired this revelation as well. He has moved the angel and moved John to write these words. Furthermore, in this book, as we saw back in chapter 1 and verse 1, the Lord his angel to show his servants what must soon take place, which recalls the very beginning of the book in chapter 1 and verse 1. So the bottom line is what you have received is clearly divine revelation. Why? Because it is revelation that has been given to you by God. Then in verse 7, the Lord Jesus speaks directly. Once again, he did this previously in chapter 16 and verse 15, and he addresses the imminency and the certainty of his second coming. Behold, I am coming soon. Uh, some form of the word come occurs seven times in this final chapter. And so in light of his any time return, uh, our response is very clear. We should keep the words of the prophecy 
of this book. In other words, we should be diligent and we should be consistent in our obedience to God's Word. After all, those who do so are promised to be blessed. You see that in verse 7. You'll see it again in verse 14. And again, the book began with a note of blessing for all who hear the book, who read the book, and who obey the book. And so that theme that began the book of Revelation also concludes the book as well. Uh, Dennis Johnson, who is a wonderful scholar, says this about this command to obey the Bible. Scripture is not a passive cadaver waiting for the curious medical students to dissect it in their quest for information. It is a double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the triumphant Son of Man and pierces and the intents of our hearts. It is a hammer that shatters, a seed that grows, rainfall that never returns to its giver without accomplishing the mission on which it is sent. Scripture has a job to do in us. So the first invitation is a good invitation. We need to obey the Word of God. Number two. We should be true to the worship of God. Verse 8 and verse 9. I, John, am the one who first heard and secondly saw these things. I think is referring to the entirety of the visions in Revelation. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me in the form of a command, you must not do that. Why? Well, I am a fellow servant, a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And then is a short staccato kind of statement. He simply reminds him once more, we are to worship God. All right, let's go back. John affirms. Uh, he is the one who both heard saw these things, the message and the visions of Revelation. And needless to say, uh, they were quite overwhelming to him. They were more than he could bear. And so he says there, when I heard and saw them, well, I fell down. And I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But immediately, verse 9, the angel commands him, you must not do that. In Greek, it's a present imperative with a negative. So what does that mean? It means to stop an action that is already in progress. So he was already in the mind of worshiping this angel. He was already in the action of worshiping this angel. And the angel commands him immediately, John, you must not do that. Why? He gives you the answer. I'm an angel. And to worship anything other than God is an act of idolatry. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what it is. And furthermore, he says to him, I am a fellow servant, literally a doulos, a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, who keep, who obey the words of this book. In other words, I'm just like you in one sense. I'm a servant of our great God, and therefore, be careful, watch out. Think clearly. Always remember the last phrase there in verse 9. There's one and only one that we are to worship. We are to worship God. Now, John had already received this same command back in chapter 19 and verse 10 where he fell there and began to worship an angel. Uh, But like us, he had not learned his lesson. Though again, I want to cut him a little slack. Uh, If I had been exposed to a vision like this, I might do something that I would not do either, so I'm going to at least give him some room there. But again, it is a reminder of the truth of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And again, we're reminded of a very, very, very simple but important truth. You take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing and it always becomes a bad thing. You take a good thing an angel, a, 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 a holy one. That's a good thing. But you turn that angel into a God thing, and now it becomes a bad thing because it becomes an act of idolatry. And so the second invitation that we are given is be true to the worship of our God. Number three, invitation number three, proclaim the truth of God, verse 10 and verse 11. 
And he said to me, so this is the angel speaking again, not only are you not to worship me, but worship God. You are to not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? Well, for the third time, the time is near. We saw back up in verse 6, what must soon take place. We saw in verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. Now again in verse 9, in verse 10, excuse me, for the time is near. And so in light of that, he gives a fourfold command. Let the evil doers still do evil. Well, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? And let the filthy still be filthy. Well, that's equally interesting. And the righteous shall do right. Okay, that's a little bit better. And the holy shall be holy. Well, I'm fine with that too, but what is he telling us there? Well, first of all, let's unwrap verse 10. Unlike the prophet Daniel, who in chapter 12 and verse 4 was told to seal the book until the time end, John is told just the opposite. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And of course, the words clearly have the force of a command. Now, why is he told that unlike Daniel, he is not to seal up this book? And the answer is very simple. The time is near. Christ could return at any moment. Uh, eternity is drawing closer for all of us. Of course, we all know tonight that eternity is really... Uh, just a heartbeat away. It could happen for any one of us at any given moment. Furthermore, in light of the fact that all of the events of Scripture have come to fruition as promised in the Bible, we recognize the second coming also is just around the corner. And so as a result of that, the prophecy is not to be sealed, but it is to be kept open. It is to be preached. It is to be taught. It is to be proclaimed. Because indeed there's coming a time when this will no longer be the case and people will no longer have the opportunity to respond to the gospel and to the word of God. That really is what verse 11 is all about. It's affirming that we need to preach the word now with, with urgency and passion. Because there's coming a time when it will be too late. In fact, he says to us there's coming a time when evildoers will be confirmed in their evil. I'm going to unwrap that. There's coming a time when the filthy will be confirmed in their filth. There's coming a time when the righteous will be confirmed in their righteousness. And there's coming a time when the holy will be confirmed in their holiness. Now you say, what do you mean by all of that? Simply this, and I've written it very carefully to make sure I say it accurately because this is very uh, tenuous theological ground. How we respond to the truth of God's Word in this life will confirm our character and determine our destiny for all of eternity. I want to say that again. How we respond to the truth of God's Word in this life will both confirm our character and determine our destiny for all eternity. In other words, negatively, the evildoer will still do evil. And he will delight in doing evil for all of eternity. Sometimes people ask me the question, well, what would happen if someone were to repent in hell? And the answer is, nobody in hell wants to repent. Nobody in hell wants God. Nobody in hell wants to bow their knee to Jesus. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? He's in hell being tormented. Did he repent? No. Did he turn to Christ? No. He wanted to warn his brothers, but there was no change in his character because once we leave this life, who you are is confirmed forever and ever and ever. So negatively, the evildoer will still do evil. The filthy will be filthy forever. Positively, the righteous will always do what is right. And the holy will always be holy. One's character, one more time, is set forever, fixed forever, in a final condition and disposition. In fact, one friend of mine said it this way, those in hell will have no heart and passion for God, but those in heaven will delight in their emulation of their Lord. These truths must be told. They dare not, we dare not be silent. Souls are at stake and eternal destinies are hanging in 
the balance. So our invitation number three, we must proclaim the truth of God. Number four, we must pursue the will of God. Verse 12, here it is again. Behold, in case you forgot in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 10, Behold, I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing my reward, my recompense with me, and I will repay everyone for what he has done. And I am right and just in doing this. Why? Because I am the Alpha and A and the Z. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And therefore, blessed, the final of seven blessings in Revelation, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life on the one hand, and they may enter into the city by its gates on the other hand, in vivid contrast. Outside of the city are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 12 contains again affirmation of the imminent return of Christ. Behold, I am coming soon. And when I come, what will I do? Well, I will bring my recompense, my reward with me. In other words, I will repay. I will reward everyone for what he has done. Uh, This recalled in my mind, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10, where the Bible says, I the Lord search the heart. I test the mind. Why? To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And as I mentioned a moment ago, verse 13 makes clear the one who will render the judgment and the one who renders this judgment is fully qualified to do so. He's the Alpha and the Omega, number one, the A to Z. He is secondly the first and the last. And thirdly, he is the beginning and the end. Those three we emphasize again and again and again that our Lord sees everything. He knows everything. Again, I'm always both blessed and haunted by the reality that he knows everything I've ever thought. He knows everything I've ever felt. He knows everything I've ever done or will do. There is no sense in which any of my actions will escape the searching eyes and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what blesses me is the fact that knowing me in that kind of a way, He still loves me. Because I know I'm eminently unlovable. I know that I am eminently unworthy. And yet knowing me in all of my sin, He still loves me. So there we see in verse 14 the seventh and the final blessing for those who love and those who obey God, those that he describes who wash their robes, who wash their robes. In other words, those who have been washed by Christ in justification continue to wash their robes in the process of sanctification. In other words, we have been washed, we are being washed, and climatically we will be washed perfectly once and forever. Again, Scott Duvall, my friend, says in the first century context that washing refers to persevering in faithfulness to Christ and refusing to compromise with the world even in the face of great tribulation. So these who are faithful in following the Lamb are promised access or the right to first the truth. And secondly, the right to our access to the holy city, that is, the new Jerusalem. In other words, the idea is basically this. Any way you look at it, eternal life and blessing is in their future. Unfortunately, verse 15 stands in striking contrast to verse 14. Those in verse 14, their destiny is the new Jerusalem. The destiny of those in verse 15, as we saw earlier in chapter 21 and verse 8, is the lake of fire. Here described as those who are outside the holy city. Robert Mounts describes this particular verse in this striking way. John describes six, or perhaps seven, depending upon how one views the two kinds of liars. Types of evildoers who are excluded from the city, that is the New Jerusalem. Now listen carefully. The term dog is not literal. It is used in Scripture for various kinds of impure, 
and malicious persons. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, the term designated a male cult prostitute. In the Jewish culture of first century Palestine, it was used in reference to the heathen. And in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul turns the tables and applies the word to the Judaizers. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and all the liars are to be excluded along with the dogs. To love and practice is to be totally devoid of truthfulness. And listen to this. These have become like their leader, Satan. These have become like their leader, Satan, who leads the whole world astray, and I would add, who leads the whole world into destruction. We must pursue the will of God. Invitation number five. We should respond to the invitation of God. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so the Spirit, and some have called 17 invitation in all the Bible. The Spirit and the God say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life, and don't you miss those last two words, without price. Jesus Himself authenticates the message of Revelation in verse 16. He says, I myself sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And then He describes Himself. He is the root that is the source and the descendant that is the offspring of David. In other words, he comes before David as God. He comes from David as man. As one man said, he is both the fruit, or the root and the fruit of David. Furthermore, he is the bright and morning star, probably an allusion to the prophetic uh, uh, promise of Messiah. Verse chapter 24 and verse 17. And then as I mentioned a moment ago, you come to this great invitation in verse 17 that takes a fourfold nature. Look at it again very quickly. The Holy Spirit begins and He says, Come. The brother is in as well. That is the church of Jesus. And she says, come. The one who hears is told to come. And the one who is thirsty is invited to come. In other words, and Brother Bill prayed it in his prayer a moment ago, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm particularly appreciative that tonight uh, we were praying for Palestinian Arabs. Uh, I am very pro-Israel. I believe that God has a future plan for the Jewish people. I also believe without any doubt that God loves the Arabs as much as He loves the Jews. And that He loves them not one whit less than He loves the Jews. Uh, and in fact, when my uh, sons were working among Muslims, and in particular, one of my sons worked with Palestinians, uh, I was grieved at how many times Christians look at them in a radically different way than they look at... They look. They say this way. They look at unbelieving Palestinians differently than they look at unbelieving Jews. And brothers and sisters, both are in need of Christ. And both will die and go to hell without Christ. And so I love the fact that the Bible says here at the very end, all who desire the eternal living water of life are invited to come and be saved. And they're invited to come and be saved without price. Why? Because Jesus has already paid it all. So we must respond to the invitation of God. Number six. Invitation number six. Heed the warning of God. And these are ominous verses. I warn everyone, verse 18, who hears the words of the prophecy of the If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That would not be a good thing. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away His share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Uh, a very severe warning is set forth either adding to the book or taking away from the book and it's all inclusive. Everyone, anyone who does this, what are we not to do? We're not to add to the book. 
I'm not going to pick on them tonight, but uh, we don't need the Book of Mormon. We don't need the Doctrines and Covenants. We don't need the Pearl of Great Price. We don't need the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, we have all that we need in the 66 books of the Bible. We don't need to add anything to it, nor do we need to take anything away from it. For those who do, the Lord Jesus promises a most severe warning, using no doubt, I think, the language of hyperbole, but yet warning us of the danger just the same. John MacArthur, in a very pastoral and theological perspective, I think so beautifully what verses 18 and 19 are all about. And here's what MacArthur says. Here's what Dr. John says. No true believer would ever deliberately tamper with Scripture. I believe that. No true believer would ever deliberately tamper with Scripture. Those who know and love God will treat His Word with the utmost respect. They will say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love Your law. And I delight in your law. Now, he's very pastoral here. That does not, of course, mean that believers will never make errors in judgment or mistakenly interpret Scripture incorrectly or inadequately. The Lord's warning here is addressed to those who engage in deliberate falsification or misrepresentation of Scripture. Those who Paul denounces as peddlers of the Word of God. And it's just, again, a reminder, brothers and sisters, this is God's book. The Bible is God's book. And therefore, since it is God's book, we should treat it with the respect that God's book deserves. Well, finally, invitation number seven. Pray for the coming of our great God. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen, says John. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the book ends with a simple word of prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Jesus again says, Surely I am coming quickly. In other words, my coming is imminent, so you better be ready. James chapter 5 verse 9 said it like this, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so hearing this promise from the lips of Christ Himself, John is quick to respond, and he responds enthusiastically. He says, Amen, which means so be it. Yes, I agree, even so, come Lord Jesus. Uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 calls us to wait and to look for what there Paul writes is our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when you look at these final verses as a whole, there are really three simple words that I think uh, communicate to us what our posture is to be in light of the fact that He could come at any time. Number one, we're to watch. Number two, we're to patiently wait. And number three, we're to witness. And it's that simple. We're to watch. We're to wait. And we are to witness. Now, persecution, trials, suffering may accompany our watching and waiting and our witness, but that's okay. God sees what's going on. God knows what's going on. God is with us. God is working. Yes, sometimes He advances His kingdom through suffering. Sometimes He advances His kingdom through martyrdom. We've seen that through the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, but never ever think that God is up in heaven wringing His hands wondering, how did things get out of control? Golly gee whiz, I didn't see that one coming. No, God never has a new thought. God has always been omniscient. God has always known everything. And God is guiding and God is planning and God is orchestrating things to their perfect and climactic end. Thus, that's how the Bible can end in a very simple in verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. To this we can say with the Apostle John, Amen. We agree. We believe. And though it's not there in the book, I could then add the end. And it's over. And now we watch and we wait and we witness. Now, in our last... We're good. 
15 minutes, let's talk a little bit more about heaven. So, if you will, take the handout that you've got this evening. And there are, I believe, about uh, 19 additional questions that are the most commonly asked. And so I'll once more walk you through them rather quickly. I, I enjoy going through this every time. And if you have a question along the way, just stick your hand up. I'll stop and I'll be glad to do my best to entertain what question you might have. So, number one, will we have emotions in heaven? Well, yes. Just as we now exist as whole persons with a mind, with emotion, so in heaven. Mind, will, and emotion will function, but praise God, they will function perfectly as we enjoy fully all that these various components of the human personality provide. In other words, your mind will have never worked so well. For some of us like me who made uh, 870 on the SAT the first time and 910 the second time, I'm very much encouraged by the fact that my brain is actually going to function as it should have when I get to heaven. My will. I will always will for that which is good and right and holy and just. And my emotions. Those of you that are here tonight that sometimes struggle with your emotions, maybe getting a little out of whack and running a little crazy from time to time, will not be the case or the problem in heaven. Now look at number two very carefully. Will we be free to sin in heaven? No. But we will be free not to sin in heaven. So explain that. Well, here we go. Let's be theological. Just as God today is completely free in His will and sinless, and by the way, can God sin? No, but He's free. He's the most free being in all of uh, reality. So, just as God is completely free in His will and sinless, so we in our glorified state will be completely free and sinless. We will be free to be our true selves as God created us to be, and that involves both full freedom and the absence of sin. Number three, what will we possess in heaven? Well, on the one hand, nothing. On the other hand, everything. Now, I'm not dogmatic here, but best I can tell, there is no private property in heaven. No ownership. You say, well, who owns everything? Well, who do you think owns everything? Jesus does. So it's all His. Yet we will also possess fullness, goodness, truth, beauty, Love, life, and most of all, God. It is these things that make heaven, heaven. Now, number four is funny. Well, we wear clothes in heaven. So, not definitely, not definitely. The Bible seems to indicate the possibility that our clothing will be a natural outgrowth of our glorified humanity. In other words, in heaven, light is the supreme entity. And it reigns in all of its fullness. And remember, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden before the fall and they were not ashamed. So will we wear clothes in heaven? Probably, possibly, but not certainly. Number five, how big is heaven? Well, it's big enough so that billions and billions of saved people are never crowded, yet small enough so that never gets lost or feels alone. Uh, Peter Kraft said it that way. I like that answer. Number six, is serious or fun? Yes. In heaven, there will be joy and happiness, seriousness and solemnity. All of these things will indeed comprise our experiences in heaven. There'll be no curmudgeons in heaven. I know there are believers down here that are curmudgeons, but they all have a personality adjustment when they get to heaven. And maybe for the first time in their life, they'll actually tell a joke. They'll actually laugh. They'll actually have some fun. I can't find anywhere in the Bible that having fun is unspiritual. In fact, this is for free. When my boys were growing up, and by God's good grace, all four of them today walk with the Lord. They're all in ministry. As we were growing up, I wanted them to be involved in a church where they had fun. Now, learn the Bible? Absolutely. Learn theological truth? Absolutely. Memorize Scripture? Absolutely. Learn how to share their faith? Absolutely. Learn how to sing wonderful hymns of the faith? Absolutely. But did I want them to have a good taste in their mouth about church? Absolutely. And in fact, I tell prospective faculty when they come to Southeastern and they begin to ask for where they should go to church, I, I list a number of good ones, including ours, but I'll always say, you find a church that your kids like. You find a church that your kids like. You say, well, if I don't like it, well, I don't care if you like it or not. Grow up. Play the man. Play the woman. Go to a church that your kids like so that when they grow up, they still like church. 
I promise you this as a parent with kids and grandkids, if your kids love church, you'll be a happy parent when you reach this stage of life. Number seven, will we be born? Absolutely not. In heaven we are with God who is infinite. We will never come to the end of knowing Him, exploring Him, growing in our knowledge of Him. In heaven, even though it is eternity, each day will be a new day as we learn more and more about the magnificence and the glory of our great God. Number eight, will we age in heaven? No. We will be fully complete, mature, perfect, and whole. I don't have this as one of the questions, but it's, it's at least uh, embedded in this. What will those who died in infancy be like in heaven? They will be fully complete, mature, perfect, and whole. That's what they will be. In other words, I think all persons will reach their full, perfect potential in their eternal, um, uh, in their eternal state, in the way that they are in heaven. So, for example, you say, well, I wouldn't want to be a baby on the one hand, if, if you're going to always be a baby, but I wouldn't want to be like a, a 99 and on the other hand, if I'm always going to be a 99, well, neither would I. But that's you're thinking of it in wrong categories because there's no age in heaven. You will be who you are in terms of your perfect potentiality, your perfect maturity, your perfect completeness. So, there's no age in heaven. Number nine, will there be ethnic segregation in heaven? No. In heaven, our oneness in Christ and the realization of our family relationship will come to perfect fruition. Number ten. Well, injuries, deformities, and other physical disabilities disappear in heaven. Yes. Amputees will have their limbs restored. The paralyzed will be healed. The blind will see. And the mentally disabled will be given full intelligence and full cognitive ability. Number 11. Will we be able to do the supernatural and the miraculous in heaven? Probably, and I should have added the words, and I sure hope so. We will have a glorified body like Jesus. We will be like Adam and Eve before the fall, but better. Number 12. Will there be government in heaven? I think the answer is yes. It will be a theocracy, a God rule. Revelation 21-24, which we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, says the nations, the ethnes, will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Thus, God's sovereign rule will be perfectly realized and manifested in heaven among angels and humans. And it appears to me that that will not rule out divine, perfect governmental structure. Number 13, will there be music and singing in heaven? Yes. And with great variety, I am sure. Now, every now and then you run into comical preachers and funny uh, teachers who say yes and there'll be this certain kind of music across you know there'll only be one kind of music so for example some of my southern gospel in heaven well I'm just going to speak personally I sure hope not I, I sure hope not now my mom and dad are already up there in the Gloria and Bill Gaither homecoming section. I can promise you they're already there waiting over there. Well, I'll be seeing them when I'm up there, but not when we're singing. Because that is not my idea of heaven. Uh, my idea is much different. And so I think there'll be magnificent variety. And actually, I imagine in heaven, I will also enjoy southern gospel music as well. Number 14. Will language be... Uh, what language will we speak in heaven? I think though the Bible doesn't speak specifically, we will speak every language with perfect clarity and complete understanding. Number 15, what will heaven look like? Well, we went through that last week and the week before. Let's just summarize it this way. It's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely glorious. It transcends our human ability to describe in this life. Number 16, bothers some people, but I'm looking forward to it. Will we work in heaven? Yes. And it will be the most satisfying and fulfilling labor we have ever known. We will never get tired or tire of the work that we do in heaven. Number 17, will we play sports in heaven? Well, I answer, why not? Zechariah chapter 8 verse 5 says, The streets of the city are filled with boys and girls playing in them. Well, if the boys and girls get to play, then maybe the adults get to play as well. So I think there'll be uh, sports and activity as such in heaven. Number 18, will we be 
or be, will we be or be like angels in heaven? Well, this requires a no and yes answer. No, we will not be angels because we're humans. And we are the object of God's redeeming love. Never forget, brothers and sisters, the angels do not understand the salvation that we have in the same way that we do because they've never been saved. They've never been fallen. They've never been lost. So how can you appreciate being found if you've never been lost? So we have a, an advantage in one sense in spite of our sinfulness. So no, they are angelic beings. We are human beings. So we will not be angels. Further, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3 that we will actually judge the angels and we will have authority over them. But yes, we will be like the angels in that in heaven we will not marry and we will not procreate. Number 19. Yes. I don't know what it means other than what it says in 1 Corinthians. I'll flip there right fast where it says that we sit in authority uh, judging the angels. Now, there's different ways that people understand that. Uh, some people think that it means we will judge in some capacity fallen angels, which are the demons, uh, which would make sense. Because in what way would we judge the good angels? And um, I don't know. All you got this really strange verse there in verse uh, 3 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? And that's where Paul is getting after them, where you've got uh, brothers suing one another in civil court. And he says, that shouldn't be happening. You should bring it into the body. The body should adjudicate these civil matters and, and, and reconcile them in some way, arbitration within the family. And his argument is, look, we're going to judge angels. My goodness, if we're going to be up there doing that, can't you handle these little mundane things down here? But he, there's not another statement in all the Scripture as to what that means. So I don't know. It, a gun to my head, I would say that it's probably a reference to us being given delegated authority by God to judge fallen angels. Because I do think just as there's degrees of reward and punishment uh, for humans, I think there will be degrees of punishment for the angels. Some angels will be judged more severe. I think Satan, if I can use uh, Dante's uh, Divine Inferno uh, uh, analogy, uh, Satan is in the lowest region of hell. He's in the most terrible, horrible, suffering component of hell because he has the greatest responsibility and the greatest privilege. So that's the best I can do there. It's a great question. Somebody else? Alright, we'll conclude then. Number 19, what will we look like in heaven? We'll be perfect. We will have a transformed, glorified body in heaven that the Bible describes as incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Now, I'm like you. I wish I had some other type of details, but it doesn't tell us. But I tell you what, being incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual is pretty good. If that doesn't satisfy you, then I'm sorry I can't help you. In fact, it will be a body like the body of the resurrected and glorified Jesus. My goodness, how can we say anything other than hallelujah, praise the Lord for a promise like that. Um, it's been great. My goodness, we've been through Revelation for almost uh, two years, counting the breaks we take that I have to take or I do take in the summer. Um, I ask for your prayers. We'll be headed to Israel and the Czech Republic right after... Um, Christmas to see our 2 plus 2 mission students. And then when we get back, we will do a short series through Philemon. And then we'll do a little mid-range series uh, through the book of Daniel. So, look, I'm already working on it, on both of them. So, looking forward to studying through those books with you after the first of the year. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Yes, sir. Sure. Question 8 says, will we age in heaven? And the answer is no. No. And then 17 says, will we play sports in heaven? Yes, it says the children are playing. Yeah. And I don't know how to, I don't know what to do with that other than, yes, I believe it. So, you know, is it possible that in our perfect completeness, in some way we are different in appearance that we relegate today in terms of children, adults, and so on? Possibly. I know this, if there are children in heaven, they will not be upset at being children. So what, what about it? We, we will be like Jesus. Yes. So where the children come in? Well, they would also have glorified bodies. 
In other words, when we're like Jesus, the emphasis is on our being of His nature and character. So not in terms of age. In other words, are we all going to be about 35 years of age? No, because there is no age in eternity. Now again, I haven't been there, so I don't know what that's like. I mean, we're talking, we're doing the best we can to describe eternal matters in finite uh, terminology. So again, I, I can just say that it's going, we're not going to be disappointed. And it's going to be good, but it is possible that based upon a verse like that, that there will be those in eternity that as we look at them, they would appear to us as children, but we would certainly not treat them like children where we're commanding them to go here and commanding them to go there and bringing them under our tutelage because they'll be perfect in terms of their mind and in terms of their emotions and all of that. So uh, that's the best I can do. Yes, sir. Now come over. God's always been. God came from nowhere, and He's everywhere. Of course, the question that I ask the skeptic is, well, where did matter come from? And they have to say, well, matter's always existed. And then I respond, well, which is harder to believe? Matter has always existed and somehow organized itself into producing what we have today? Or that a supernatural being has always existed and he brought into existence what we see today? You tell me which takes greater faith. Because he's basically saying that something came from nothing. We're saying something came from an eternal God. I think there's... I won't say it takes more faith. I think it takes irrational faith. Yeah, I think it's irrational faith to say that something came from nothing. In fact, uh, it doesn't work like that anywhere in all of reality. Yes, sir. I'm just going to say that no matter what age we are, God looks at us as His children. We are His children, and He is our Father. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you have a question? Um, well, one of our friends, our oldest grandson, went to be with the Lord when he was nine. Mm-hmm. So I was just, you know, what it well, again, there's there's no age in eternity, and so uh, what will he be? He will be Ben. Uh, he will be perfect. He will be complete. He will be all that God intended for him to be. Now, will he then have an appearance that we would equate with what a nine-year-old looks like? I don't know. If I live to be a hundred, which I do not want to live to be a hundred, uh, I promise you, I've never wanted to live to be a hundred. Well, I look like a 100-year-old. Well, if I do, I'll be a 100-year-old that can jump and run and bounce and play and have no limitations whatsoever. But in our glorified state, again, if we go back to what the glorified Christ looked like when He is shining forth in His brilliance and glory, if we're like that, then what does that even look like? I mean, I don't even know how, because they, again, they could not withstand it when he was transfigured in the, the Gospels. They, you know, he had this glowing, brilliant uh, appearance that they could hardly look upon. And I don't, he said, well, did he look like he was still 33 years old? I don't know. I know he looked like God shining forth in all of his brilliance. Will we be something like that? Possibly. Well, then what does that look like? Well, I don't know. Because I've never been there. How about the sex of women who have lost babies? Or well, I think that babies that... Because, I mean, you know, a miscarriage... I think all babies that have been... I think every... Here's what I think. I think even those conceptions that took place that mothers never knew about, and, and you know, the, the, the child did not last... But, but a matter maybe of hours or days, and, you know, through a normal discharge of a woman, that baby was gone... I think they'll all be in heaven. See, some people think that hell will be a lot more populated than heaven. I vehemently disagree. Vehemently disagree. Uh, John said, as we saw in Revelation, when he was gathered around the throne in chapter 7, that the number was so great he could not count them, which is intimating that it is virtually numberless, the people that are in heaven worshiping Jesus. All right, so where do they come from? Well, they come from, I work backwards, in part from those that we have evangelized and shared the gospel and have trusted in God throughout all of human history. Those that reached an age of moral discernment and had the ability to receive and trust in Christ. All right. But I also believe all persons that never reach a state of mental discernment of right and wrong 
are objects of God's saving grace. And I can make the argument. I've got an article on my website. You can go look at it. Why I believe babies who die go to heaven. Well, not only do I believe that babies that die in infancy go to heaven. I believe all, all that have ever been conceived that die before even leaving their mother's womb go to heaven. Well, how many is that? We don't know. Billions. Billions. So, I think that, the, again, I believe in a sanctity of life ethic. I believe life is sacred from the moment of conception to natural death. Because at the moment of conception, you have a human being. So, all that have been aborted, all that have died by miscarriage, uh, all that passed without us even knowing that the mother miscarriage will all be in heaven. Now, what will they be like? Well, their full potential and maturity will be realized in heaven. They won't be a, a, a fetus, you know, swimming around somewhere like a little t- tadpole. And that's crazy. They'll be a human being that we will be able to interact with, talk with, engage. What, what will they be? Will they be, as a parent, five years old, 15 years old, nine years old, 99 years I don't know. Because in heaven there's no time and in heaven there's no age. And I've never been to a world like that. So I don't know what it's going to be like. But your nine-year-old will be there as well as these miscarriages. I believe every child that's ever been miscarried will be in heaven. Every single one. And we'll start with this, which is why some of my friends have argued, and I don't disagree with it, but it's not going to stop my missionary passion. If that's true, what I just said, well, then every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be represented in heaven by those that died in infancy. Every, every, every people on the planet have had infants that have died. Every people group on the planet have had miscarriages. And they'll all be in heaven. So in that sense, we do have a certainty of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation being in heaven. So then you say, well, then that means we should not evangelize. No, 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 no. Those who reach an age of maturity, if they don't hear the gospel and believe the gospel, will die and go to hell. So I'm after them, thanking God that He's taking care of the others. Very interesting. It's a good question. Yes, sir. I just uh, I think I, I speak for everybody and all those that are not here tonight that how grateful we are for you to take your time and just busy guy to share your knowledge uh, to us and, and you've just blessed us and, and encouraged us and strengthened us. Well, thank you. I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody. We're really grateful. Well, thank you. Well, it blesses me. Y'all are a constant um, blessing and encouragement to me. So I look forward to it. I really do. So, well, let me close this thing. Father, thank you for this evening. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who really do bless and encourage me. I look forward to Wednesday night being with them as we just uh, gather around your word to see what you have to say to us. And Lord, over the last many months, a couple of years, you have said a lot to us about the future. And you've said a lot to us about heaven. And Lord, again, I think all of us in this room have even more of a longing for it because of this study. And we also, Lord, want to join with the Apostle John and simply say, Lord, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you that you came the first time as a babe uh, almost 2,000 years ago. But thank you that you're coming back as a glorious warrior, a king and a lord riding on a white horse, coming to indeed claim all that rightly belongs to you. How we thank you. As one of my brothers said tonight, we are all your sons and daughters through faith in King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. God's blessings. Y'all have a great Christmas.